We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Well, we'll be in uh, Psalm chapter 5 and 6 today, please. Psalm chapter 5. To the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me... I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Psalm 6. To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. 
The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. And uh, we'll spend the remainder of our time in the book of Ezra this evening. And so I invite you to turn there uh, this evening. And really this evening we're not going to get far into the text, maybe actually just the first four verses or so. Really what I want to provide this evening is an introduction to the book of Ezra. Uh, perhaps you were wondering this past week where I'm going to go next after finishing First Timothy last, last week. And I'm so thankful for the time we had in that epistle, that letter to, to Timothy. I learned much from that, and I hope you did as well. And I look forward to the next time we'll look into it. But we put it aside for now and we move on to this Old Testament book, the book of Ezra. And actually, you might remember, if not, I don't, I don't blame you, but uh, I began a study in Ezra back in, uh, I think, June of 2021. And uh, we only got a little ways into that. And so I think we got into chapter 3, but I'm going to start back in chapter 1 because, well, a lot of time has lapsed since then. And uh, I think it's worth the time to kind of start back at the beginning and look at it again there's only 10 chapters here in Ezra, so perhaps this will take us through the end of the year, and then we'll go on to something after that, the new year, if Lord willing. As I studied this week and looked at the book of Ezra, I wanted to be able to summarize what is the purpose of the book of Ezra here in the Old Testament. What is, it, what is its function? And not necessarily even on a, on a theological level, like what does it teach us about God that's important, or the people of Israel, but... What does it tell us that's important to the history of Israel, God's people? And I found a very helpful purpose statement in a book that I was reading, and I kind of used that as part of my understanding of the purpose of Ezra. And so we could summarize it in this way, that the purpose of the book of Ezra is to record the events of the first and second returns to the land of Israel by the Jews in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. We'll look more at that prophecy uh, this evening later on in Jeremiah 25, also in uh, chapter 29 as well. And so the book of Ezra tells us about this this time in, in Israel's history where they've been in captivity, and now God is answering uh, or fulfilling his promise, being faithful to his promise, and allowing the nation of Israel to return to the land after 70 years of captivity. The book of Nehemiah records uh, the third return of the Jews, and uh, our brother Jew just drew, just finished uh, reading through Nehemiah just a couple weeks ago. And so I thought, well, that's also helpful to our study here in Ezra because it, it gives us a glimpse into uh, the future of Israel and the third return to the land of Israel. And so We'll reference Nehemiah here at times through, a book of, through the book of Ezra as it, as it correlates to this time period in Israel's history. Together, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah cover over a century of Israel's post-exilic history from about 538 to 423 B.C. And so that covers a good amount of time, although not as much as some other books in the Old Testament. I want to begin this evening by really just focusing on the historical backdrop to Ezra 
And so, like I said, we're not really going to get into much of the book this evening, but I want to kind of paint the canvas, paint the backdrop to Ezra and how the people of Israel got to the place that they are in, as we see here in Ezra. And I want to really begin all the way back at the, the defeat of the northern nation of Israel and kind of correlate all of these things together through a chronological look as well as looking at how the various Old Testament books play into this timeline and this historical backdrop here. As there's a number of prophets that prophesy during this time, there's uh, a number of kings like we see in First Kings and Second Kings as well as First and Second Chronicles. And so how do they all, how do they all correlate together? Because we often read the Old Testament we read maybe the narrative, we read the, the poetic sections, we read the Psalms, we read the minor prophets, and sometimes we kind of see them as disjointed, uh, you know, kind of books because they talk, they have different themes, different genres, but they really play into one another when it comes to the history of Israel and God's working in that nation. And so I, I hope to kind of paint a picture of how we can correlate some of these books of the Bible as it relates to the backdrop of Ezra. In the last year of the reign of Shalmaneser, the Assyrians defeated the northern nation of Israel in 722 BC. Maybe you're thinking of the timeline of 1st and 2nd Kings when that took place, some of the events around that leading up to that. Eventually the Assyrian Empire fell as well though once and for all in 605 BC when the remaining stronghold uh, city, Carchemish, fell under the strong hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So maybe you're thinking now in your mind, Daniel, the book of Daniel, and the events that unfolded there. And while that was happening, while, uh, while the Assyrian Empire was falling, Necho II, who was kind of the pharaoh in Egypt at that time, was also an, an ally of Assyria, tried to provide aid to Assyrian forces while uh, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to and successfully did defeat them. And we see this, this attempt to help and aid Assyria in Second Chronicles 35, verses 20 to 27. You might remember at that point, King Josiah attempted to stall the Egyptians. He goes out against them. We see this as well in Second Kings 23, 29. But it was not the Lord's will for him to do that. He went against God's will, which might be surprising, seeing that Josiah was really a reformer, a man of God, yet some, uh, at some point he kind of goes astray and doesn't heed God's warning. He goes against God's will, and ultimately it costs him his life. Josiah dies in battle, and they don't actually defeat the Egyptians, and the Egyptians move forward into north Syria, and at that point, then, Nebuchadnezzar, with his forces, successfully drive them back down to Egypt. And it's at that point that Nebuchadnezzar forces Jerusalem to pay tribute, as well as takes prisoners, including Daniel the prophet. So maybe that now is helping you to correlate, then, the events of Daniel, as you see in even just the first four verses of Daniel, that Daniel, along with other men, strong men, young men of of Judah are taken back as prisoners of war. And this is the first of Judah's three deportations. There's three deportations to Babylon, and this is the first of three. And so now Judah, 
under the power of the Babylonian Empire, became a sort of vassal state, we might say, uh, governed uh, by kings in Judah, but really the sovereign was the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar places Jehoiachin on the throne, but he rebels against Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar surrounds Jerusalem and takes yet more prisoners back into Babylon, including Ezekiel the prophet in 597 B.C. After this, Zedekiah was placed on the throne in Judah, at least what was left of Judah at that time. They've largely been demoralized. They've been defeated. Many of them have been taken back to Babylon, but there remains a few, and Zedekiah is king over them. But he also fails to uh, submit himself to Babylon, and he also fails to heed the word of Jeremiah the prophet to accept the fact that the Babylonian control over Judah was actually the will of God. In Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 27 and 28, as well as in chapter 38, uh, warns Zedekiah to not try to overthrow, not to try to rebel, but accept the fact that this is God's will for them to be deported to Babylon for a time. But Zedekiah does not heed the word of Jeremiah. Instead, uh, he tries to rebel. And the fate of the nation of Judah is sealed at that time. Nebuchadnezzar swiftly defeats Judah once and for all in 586. And at that time, as part of the spoil, you might recall that the Babylonians brought back to their land the utensils and other items that were used for temple service. And that correlates then to what we see in Ezra and also in Nehemiah, which we'll look at later on in our study. Jeremiah then, moving to this prophet for a moment, writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon that they should settle in Babylon until the day that God would visit them and bring them back and restore them to the land. I want to just read that for you uh, this evening, if you would. Turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 27. Or you can listen as I read. It says, uh, let me start back in verse 19. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, and concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, that is, visit God's people, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place that is back in Israel. We also see in chapter 30, verse 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words 
that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. So we see here our promise that God would restore them to the land. Just as, or that is after Judah would spend 70 years in captivity. And so at this point, I want you to look back at Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Let me start, though, uh, in verse 3. Jeremiah 29, 3, it says, The letter was sent by the hand of uh, Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. So this is Jeremiah's letter to the captives, to the exiles, exiles and he's encouraging them to, to wait upon the Lord, to build houses, to wait for the time that God would restore them, like we read in chapter 30, verse 3. Starting back in 29, verse 5, the letter says this, Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may, they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. You see the Lord's concern there? not sending them into captivity to never be heard of again to you know just to move into extinction god will preserve them until the day he will restore them to the land verse 7 and seek the peace of the city where i have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the lord for it for in its peace you will have peace for israel is not to cause you know a disruption to be unpeaceable people but rather to live peaceably with the Babylonians. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not, let, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you, have, which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Then verse 10, For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you. And perform my good word, word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I have to pause here and say many people <laughs> kind of take this verse out of context, you know, and it, it looks nice on a T-shirt or a mug. The fact that you know God, uh, you know, God has plans for us, and that is true. God knows our ways. He ordains the steps of the righteous person, we know. But in the context here, imagine, imagine being an exile in Babylon and receiving this letter and hearing of God's promise that he is, has not forgotten them. He is thinking of them. And these are thoughts of peace not of evil. He has a future and a hope for his people. Then verse 12, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. 
and you will seek me and find me, then you, and, and when you search for me with all your heart, excuse me, when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all, all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Also, uh, turn back just for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 12. We also see uh, the statement here that it will, in fact, be 70 years that they will be in captivity. In verse 10, Jeremiah 25, 10, it says, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Verse 12, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So God makes this promise to his people that after 70 years of captivity, he will deliver them from captivity and cause them to return to the land. And in fact, it was about 70 years after the first deportation that we see the first return of the people of Israel. And we see that recorded in the first uh, few chapters of Ezra. Now, I want to kind of for a moment then, uh, just caused us to think about what it was like during that time in exile leading up to Babylon. The book of Daniel gives us a glimpse of what life as a Jew was like during the time in Babylon. In many ways, it was not that difficult, politically speaking, in that uh, you know, they, were, they were generally cared for <laughs> You know, they had a place to live. They, if they lived peaceably with them, things would go well for them. And so although there was no political threat to them, per se, while exiles in Babylon, the Jews faced the difficulty of being faithful to the Lord in an idolatrous nation. Would they maintain their covenant faithfulness, or would they apostatize? Would they turn away to the idols of Babylon, the gods of Babylon. And we see throughout the book of Daniel, I wish we had time to look at it this evening, we see throughout Daniel that there indeed were at least a remnant of Jews in Babylon who remained faithful to their covenant with the Lord. We see that most predominantly in the life of Daniel, even from the very beginning where he refuses to eat from the king's table so as not to defile himself and to disobey the law of Moses. Further on in Daniel chapter 3, we see that also Daniel's companions, and it's interesting that Daniel's not mentioned in chapter 3 at all, but we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also demonstrate covenant loyalty in that they do not bow down to the statue nor worship the gods or serve the gods of, of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And although they're mocked, and even Nebuchadnezzar says to them, you know, who can save you from my hands? They do not compromise, yet they remain faithful. But it's not just the faithfulness of God's people that we see in Daniel, but we also see God's faithfulness to his people. Even in that story in Daniel chapter 3, where God indeed has the power, he demonstrates, to deliver his people from trials and from death as well. So imagine living in Babylon. Imagine living during the time in which there was a pressure placed upon them to conform to the religious activities of the Babylonians. We see later on in Daniel that Daniel also refuses to stop praying to the Lord. And although it's interesting, there's no, uh, there's no uh, commandment, I believe, that Daniel was following specifically that, that uh, required him to pray like he did every day uh, or, you know, pray with an open window. But he did that out of a faithfulness and a desire to commune with the Lord. And so we see glimpses of covenant faithfulness even while in exile through the life of Daniel and his companions. We also see in the book of Ezekiel a glimpse into the exilic life in Babylon. Ezekiel's message to the exiles concerned the imminent destruction of, Babylon, of, excuse me, of Jerusalem, which we talked about that happened in, in 586. However, Ezekiel also prophesies of a time where God's people would indeed return, just as Jeremiah the prophet also prophesied. Now, we fast forward in history, and the return of God's people would be made possible by the demise of Babylon, like we read about in Jeremiah 25, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And this happens shortly after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, when Cyrus of Anshan, or maybe we know him better as Cyrus the Great, toppled the Babylonian Empire in 539. And although his reign begins actually in 559, it's in 539 that uh, the empire is toppled, that is the Babylonian Empire, and thus begins the opportunity for God's people to return, as we'll see in Ezra. And so it's really the Persian Empire, not the Babylonian Empire, that forms the historical backdrop to the book of Ezra, as well as Nehemiah, also for the end of Second Chronicles, as well as the book of Esther, which actually falls in the events timeline of events that we see in Ezra, which we'll talk about later on. Who is this Cyrus the Great that God used to provide a way to return? Well, Cyrus was the dominant political figure for Judah and had actually been mentioned earlier, that is years earlier, by the prophet Isaiah. I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. 
Let me begin in verse 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and, who, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Verse 1 of chapter 45 Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. And it goes on to say more about uh, God's servant Cyrus. Though no indication that he was a man of God at all, God used him as an instrument to fulfill his promise to his people as prophesied by, by Isaiah and also by Jeremiah of the return. And as the Lord's anointed instrument, Cyrus would help fulfill and complete God's plan of bringing the people back just as the Lord promised. And it's interesting, historically, if you look at uh, Cyrus and what he was known for and how he was kind of recognized by other nations, Cyrus gained a reputation as what we might say an extremely lenient ruler or a very kind ruler to an extent. Uh, we learn from uh, extra-biblical uh, literature that he did not try to disrupt the status quo in the land of people he conquered, as long as it didn't threaten his sovereignty, of course. But he would allow things to kind of go status quo. How you want to live your lives is fine. How you, the, worship, the gods you want to worship, go ahead and worship. And he didn't try to uh, replace their gods with his own. And that was true of this kind of policy that he had, that to, that he would recognize the claims of native gods over their followers and make no effort to supplant them with his own gods. And that bode well for God's people. Of course, God was planning this all along. It's not like it was coincidence. God was working to provide a ruler who would be have this kind of demeanor, this kind of reputation. And it bode well for God's people, as we said, as it had direct bearing on the plights of the exilic community in Babylon. Only a restored temple in Jerusalem would provide an opportunity for Israel's God to function effectively as the God of, of Judah, at least in Cyrus's mind. And so, thus, an eager solicitation of the favor of Yahweh, Cyrus permits the Jewish people to return, providing them with the resources and protection necessary to accomplish the goal of rebuilding 
the temple. And we see this proclamation uh, in Ezra chapter 1. And so... um, If you want to turn there just for a moment. In Ezra chapter 1, and you can also read this at the end of Second Chronicles in chapter 36, we see this proclamation of Cyrus, king of Persia. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, beginning there, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all of his people? Excuse me, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Amazing, is it not? that God would use this man to fulfill his promise, to restore his people, to cause them to be able to return. And it's here in Ezra chapter 1, or at least beginning here, that the first return of the exiles to Jerusalem completes the 70 years of captivity. God used Cyrus as an instrument to fulfill his promise of bringing them back to the land. And this, then, is where the book of Ezra picks up the narrative of Israel's history with the first return of God's people. I want to move now just for a few more moments to kind of an outline of Ezra before we look into it in more depth. We see uh, that there's really two major sections to the book of Ezra, and so you know, kind of make a mental note of this as we study through Ezra. And the first section... Uh, or really what we might call the first phase of return, we see in chapters 1 through chapter 6, verse 22. And it's in this section that we see the first return under Zerubbabel, who leads the people back to Jerusalem and begins to rebuild the temple. But I want to make note that uh, in chapter 4, of course we'll make a note of this when we get there, In chapter 4, uh, verses 6 to 23, or excuse me, 24, we see uh, Ezra kind of jumps ahead in the timeline to really the time of Nehemiah where there's opposition to the rebuilding or to the temple, um, to the rebuilding of the temple during Nehemiah's time. And so you might wonder, well, why does Nehemiah, or excuse me, why does Ezra jump ahead here? Why doesn't he just kind of chronologically work through the events here? I think what Ezra is doing here is he's, he includes this, this uh, account of opposition to the rebuilding of the temple because it fits neatly uh, within, uh, within the timeline because there's also other opposition that happens during Ezra's 
time here, or excuse me, during the time of Zerubbabel before Ezra's uh, return. And so why does, again, why does Ezra skip ahead? Because just like there was opposition during Zerubbabel's time, there's also opposition that happens during Nehemiah's time. And so Ezra kind of makes this parenthetical remark in chapter 4, verses 6 to 24, to speak about the opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. And then in chapter 7, we see the second phase of the return, and this is actually where Ezra enters the picture. Everything up until now is, uh, is events that have preceded Ezra's return, but now Ezra comes on the scene. And it's really here, and especially uh, in chapter 7 and 8, that we see uh, the, the, the incredible work of Ezra, in leading the people and causing them to uh, to look to the Lord. It's also interesting that uh, in this time, probably somewhere between chapters 7 and 8, are the events of Esther. So maybe that helps you kind of uh, think about uh, the book of Ezra and how it fits into the history of Israel. It's during some time probably between Ezra 7 and 8 that... Uh, the the uh, accounts of Esther ter- take place. I wanted to uh, ask you just to turn to Ezra chapter 7 just for a moment. Now I just want to read in closing verses 1 through 10. Course, we'll look at this later on in our study in Ezra, but I think it's uh, pertinent to kind of an introduction here to Ezra. It says in verse 1, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of uh, Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalem, the son of Zadok, the son of uh, Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merithot, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Bukai, the son of uh, Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. And so here we see one kind of uh, characterization or uh, identification concerning the man Ezra. He's called a scribe in the law of Moses. Make a mental note of that for later on which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Verse 7, Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. And then verse 10, For the Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. I think that's uh, kind of an important, verse 10 is kind of an important note that kind of uh, overshadows the whole book of Ezra. 
that this was not simply about returning to the land, but restoring proper worship in the land. And all it took was one man like Ezra who prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and teach it. And as maybe just a point of application this evening in this introduction, pray that we have the same kind of heart as Ezra, a man who's prepared in his heart to seek the law of the Lord, or we might say God's word, the scriptures. But not just to seek it, but to do it. It's easy to talk about things. It's much harder to do it. We must be those who are doers of the word, not hearers only. And so we learn just even this evening a glimpse into the heart of Ezra, the mind of Ezra, who is a man of God, and we'll learn more about him and through our study, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we ask now as we go our way that as we've looked into a little bit of the backdrop to Ezra, Lord, may we be reminded of your faithfulness to your people as well as your faithfulness to your promises, Lord, that everything you command, everything you promise will be fulfilled. Lord, including your promises to your people, the nation of Israel, to restore them to the land. And Lord, as we anticipate our study through the book of Ezra, we, may we be, Lord, encouraged that there was a remnant of people like Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and, and the man Ezra who sought the Lord to do the will of the Lord and to teach others to follow the Lord's will as well in his word. May we be those kind of people who who maybe aren't leading returns to any land, but are leaders of people to cause them to, to seek the Lord, to know his word, and to do it. And may you help us to do that this week in our places of work and uh, influence. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.